Two shows ago, we traveled to Mille Lacs to continue the conversation on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Today, we dig into another element of Indigenous trauma, boarding schools. More and more bodies of Indian children sent to these boarding schools are being discovered, shedding more light on the intentional erasure of Indigenous language and culture. Hi, this is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros, recently retired from Metropolitan State University and cultural consultant. I'm Anthony Galloway, executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. We do have a very welcome guest joining us today. We have Christine McCleave, who is the CEO of the National Native Boarding School Healing Association. Thank you for having me on the show today. Dinawe Maginiduk, Dindizi Indigenikas, Makinakwaju Indunjiba, Megizi Indudame. And what I just said to you in Ojibwe was greetings, my relatives. My name is Blue Jay, and I'm from Turtle Mountain, Ojibwe Nation, and I am Eagle Clan. My English name is Christine McCleave, so I go by Christine Dindisi McCleave. And yes, I'm the CEO for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. We're uh, headquartered here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and that's where I'm coming to you from today. Thank you for having me. How long ago was it? About a month, month and a half ago, two months. There was a news report that came out that there were 215 Indian children bodies that were found in a undisclosed uh, mass grave at Camp Loops Indian Residential Boarding School uh, located in British Columbia. And, you know, that was a kind of a shocking news report um, that came out. And since that time, there has been much discussion, much um, information that is beginning to show up on social media surrounding not only the remains that were found in Canada, but also discussion and remains that are being found here in the United States concerning boarding schools. On previous counter stories, um, I have mentioned periodically the fact that my mother um, attended boarding school. She attended two boarding schools, Pipestone, Minnesota, and then eventually Flandreau, South Dakota, where she was sent. And boarding schools, I've also mentioned, you know, have a long history or for what their use was and, and why they were created. And I think, you know, personally, this ties in. Uh, two weeks ago, we did a segment on murdered and um, missing Indian women. And I think the topic of boarding schools and residential schools and the fact that we're that they're finding dead Indian children at these sites ties in tremendously with the, the previous podcast we did a couple weeks ago. And unfortunately, uh, Luz Marie Freyas is not able to join us in person today uh, because of her schedule. And so my understanding is that uh, in order to get us started, uh, 
We have a question that um, Luz Marie Frey has sent in. Our country has spent generations and centuries intentionally erasing the voice of indigenous families here in our country. And this revelation of discovering so many mass graves of indigenous children is horrific. How do we begin as a society in your mind and in your experience, how do we begin to hold policymakers accountable and quite honestly, also the media accountable to no longer erase the native voice from our everyday thinking and coverage? Because we don't hear about indigenous people unless there is some particularly unique situation that's attached to the indigenous community. In my mind, that is wrong. And so we should be thinking about how do we include the indigenous voices from our communities on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that was um, a really heavy question. And, you know, there's pieces of that question that I can address to the last point of how do we include indigenous narratives in our everyday life? I think that involves a paradigm shift and could really be extended to um, how do we have a more inclusive society that doesn't set us off on that paradox of those who are included and those who are not, and therefore we have to include them because they're outside the regular scope, right? How do we just be better human beings, I think is the gist of her question. Um, to really get to that question is is to look at why um, the narratives in this country come from one perspective and not many. There are probably academics who have dedicated their whole lives to dissecting um, these these narratives and, and the way we interact with other cultures outside of our own. The question about when natives do show up in the media, I would also extend that to when we show up in, um, you know, academic studies or narratives that there's this thing about deficit discourse and that it's usually framing us in the negative rather than framing us in the positive. And all of that goes back to the historical narrative, um, you know, all the way back to um, cowboys and Indians, right? We were the bad guys and um, the narrative that this land was fought for and won, right? Um, well, who did they fight and, and who, uh, you know, if somebody won, somebody lost, right? So I think there's a lot of issues in terms of, you know, how we can look at the, the historical narrative and, and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories we perpetuate and, you know, whether implicitly or implicitly or, you know, whether it's subconsciously or our implicit biases, um, racial biases. I mean, this gets into like all of those, all of those issues. Um, but really what it comes down to is that this is a story of genocide and that the United States has, um, purposefully not told that story in that way that, um, 
the, the story has been from the perspective of those people who came to this land to occupy it, to, um, to overtake it, and not from the perspective of the indigenous peoples who lived here since time immemorial on Turtle Island, which is, how, you know, what, how we refer to North America. And so when we get to issues like unmarked graves from boarding schools that were federally sanctioned and church run, or missing and murdered indigenous peoples. All of that goes back to that original story and that original paradigm of how this country was founded. Who did that? Who did that finding? Right? Did they, did they really discover us? Right? Um, I always like to tell the story that Columbus was lost at sea and discovered by indigenous peoples. Right. Um, for, for us who are native, we chuckle because that's true. And, and for those who might not, you know, have thought of it from that perspective, they might scratch their head and really have to think about it from, you know, starting with Kamloops and, um, now other communities have also found unmarked graves and the numbers just keep rising. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of people are shocked and dismayed and horrified. Um, but that's the people who maybe didn't know about this history. But for Native people who knew this history and knew that there were unmarked graves and knew about these atrocities and human rights violations, it's not a shock. It's it's triggering of our historical trauma. You know, Christine, you you touched on many different many different topics. And, you know, one of the examples I give in terms of the historical narrative is is a history class I was taking at McAllister College back in the early 70s. And I asked one simple question to my history professor, and that is how can we study early American history and not talk about the indigenous populations that were present? And my history professor proceeded to tell me that we study history from the perspective of those who conquered and not those who were vanquished. Um, That sounds harsh, but it was the most honest thing a professor had ever told me because that is exactly how this country operates. Um, I oft, I've shared, <laughs> like you have, how when I was younger and, and we're taught that Christopher Columbus discovered America, well, you know, even as a young boy, I, I had a hard time with that because I'm thinking my ancestors were here with sandwiches and six packs to go, but the visitors never left. So how can you discover something when there's already, our ancestors were already here. So that, you know, there's many stories that we were, we were educated with, including the big, the big myth in terms of how the West was won. Because that dichotomy, just like you said, sets up a winner and a loser. And who was the loser? I mean, I grew up like any other red-blooded American boy. I'm from uh, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, and can remember very vividly playing cowboys and Indians, and uh, nobody wanted to be the Indian, including myself, until I got a little bit older and realized that I had been taught to hate myself. Well, you know, one of the things I appreciate, Christine, about how you're shifting the paradigm um, and, and we need to shift uh, paradigms in, in, in several areas, um, but one, beyond just the unabashed truth-telling that needs to happen, 
right? Um, and, and the face-to-faceness. It's easy when narratives come from outside of our U.S. context um, because we can we can point at that and say, oh, that's over there. The only reason we're not having the same exact conversation is because we haven't dug, because we haven't haven't looked at the ground that you know which we stand on. I, I think another uh, paradigm that, that that you allude to is um, it's the matrix like judo flip <laughs> that we like to do for our American mythos. And I say that purposefully because it's happening in South America, Central America, and North America too. We wrap and warp our our narratives um, in ways that 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 either make us feel better or allow us to stack or pack our shame someplace else instead of dealing with it directly and the repercussions of it. Um, you know, one of the the, the wonderings I have is, and, and it and it centers around, you know, even in in my own community context, there's a you know, there's there's this constant back and forth around how we treat the historical trauma that we must face, and other folks have the luxury of, or you know, have had the luxury for a long time of not facing. Um, as we as we try to to educate ourselves, it would be inconceivable for Jewish children not to learn about what happened in the Holocaust. And there's no questioning that in our K-12 system and spaces where that needs to be put forward. At least it doesn't seem to be the, the resistance there in the way that there seems to be a resistance or an attempt to not talk about the, the genocide of indigenous peoples, the, the, the um, genocide of African peoples and coming to the Americas, of which 80% were in Central and South America. That's why I'm, I'm using the inclusive definition of the Americas for, for North and South. You know, and so I, I just in in doing this work and un- uncovering these truths, um, I, I, there there are two things that are constantly at play, and that is one: <laughs> what do we do with how do we take care for this historical trauma and this truth telling that must happen, and simultaneously um, do it in a way that doesn't require us to relive and internalize our own traumatic experience for the consciousness raising of white people. This is one of the paradigms that I think you allude to and, and, and needs to shift as well. So I'm just curious how you've been walking those, those many walks in your work. Yeah, too bad this is only going to be on the radio because you're all missing my faces that I'm making. <laughs> Anthony is talking. I'm making some faces over here. I have a very expressive face <laughs> um, because, yeah, you really hit a nerve there. Um, I don't see any way that that we can shift the paradigm without, you know, placing. I mean, we need to, to share the burden, but obviously the burden is on the people who have been historically oppressed. Um, that that's one of the paradigms, right? And we can uh, talk about the pedagogy of the oppressed, right? Um, but I, I think I, I realized there was a part of the question earlier um, that I didn't answer. And how do we hold the government responsible for this policy, right? And I saw, you know, although you brought up a really good point, Anthony, I, you know, you saw my eyes get really big and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't have an answer to that question and don't make my brain work that hard. (laughs) So let me just answer what I know how to answer because this work is hard. Um, This is heavy stuff. This is personal for me. I'm a descendant of boarding school survivors and um, so this trauma, you know, lives in me and my family and my children and uh, the work that we have to do to heal is not only um, internal in, and personal on an individual level, 
but does involve, you know, our families, our communities and society as a whole. And so, you know, the answer is that we have to address it on all those different levels. We have to do the work individually. We have to do the work to have these conversations in our families and to um, have those be healthy and whole relationships and um, have that ripple out into our community and um, and work as a society and as a nation to to address this. So really what we've done at the uh, boarding school, school healing coalition is we have been working. Um, our programs are centered around education, advocacy and healing. When it comes to education, you know, that's the majority of our work. We're trying to raise awareness for the general public about this history, about, you know, this part of American history and this country's legacy when it comes to its, its foundations and, and the indigenous peoples who were here first and also raising awareness within our native communities about how boarding schools impacted our families and the legacies that live on today with, you know, the damage that was done to our language and culture and, and our traditional teachings and way of life and, and how that shows up in our daily lives uh, today. And, you know, that education and awareness is really the, the beginning of everything, right? You can't heal or mend or fix something unless you've identified what it is, unless you name it. And so um, that really is where everything begins for us. And the advocacy is always around, you know, trying to get the federal government to take responsibility. And, and I, you can see, again, this should be a visual because you can see me shaking my head, you know, like that's been an uphill battle. But, um, essentially over the years, what, what happened, um, was almost like a blessing with the change of administration in 2016. It was a very depressing moment for me personally, but in terms of the coalition, it forced us to change our strategies. You know, prior to that, we had been meeting with, um, the White House initiative on American Indian and Alaskan native education. And, you know, we thought we had a direct line to President Obama. And then the administration changed after the election. And we were like, oh, okay, we have to change our strategy now because uh, this new administration is not going to listen to us. So we went towards, you know, doing the research ourselves. We had asked the government, um, you know, for the information about boarding schools and they didn't respond. They said, we, we can't do research. We don't know where all the records are. So we started doing the research ourselves. And um, because of that, over the last four years, we were able to, you know, make a significant amount of progress with, you know, finding some answers and, and, and being able to tell the truth from our perspective of history about boarding school experiences and impacts. So that um, last year I was able to meet with Congresswoman Deborah Halland when she was still in the House of Representatives and before the pandemic hit <laughs> and um, and told her, you know, about the work we were doing. Essentially, we're doing the work of a commission and, you know, how the U.S. really needs a commission. And so in September of 2020, she introduced the first bill ever for a truth and healing commission on Indian boarding schools. And that, that was historic, you know, that, that kind of legislation had never been introduced before. And of course it was election season and there was a lot going on politically. So the bill did not get the attention that it deserved. And now as secretary of the interior, she has launched this initiative 
um, so that the Department of the Interior will investigate the Indian boarding schools that this country ran. And that is also historic because this country has never acknowledged its Indian boarding school policy or um, you know, said that it was going to look into the policy. So the initiative that she announced will um, give an investigation and a report that will be due to her in April of 2022. And um, they're going to answer the questions that we've been asking for 10 years. How many boarding schools did this country have? How many children went to those schools and how many died or went missing? Um, we don't think they'll be able to get all the answers in less than a year, but we know that they will make a good start and we're anticipating that the report will probably say further investigation is needed, which is why we're still working with legislators to reintroduce the bill for a truth and healing commission, because we believe that commission will finish that work that the interior started. So, uh, Christine, you had mentioned that, um, you know, part of Luz's question was how do we how we hold the government um, accountable um, so there's the the movement to to get this bill passed, right? What are are some of the other ways as as we're talking? I mean, you know, I know we're not in Canada, but we've you know we know now all the bodies that have been discovered. I mean, how can regular citizens be holding the government accountable when we're discovering all this grim? I mean, and honestly, I mean, I don't think anybody was surprised that this had been happening, right? I mean, people in community have been talking for a long time about deaths, mis children going missing um, from boarding schools, never being heard from again. This is being brought back up to the forefront. So how do we respond? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, you're right. This this isn't a, uh, a surprise for people in Native communities who have heard these stories and, and kept these stories alive, waiting for the time when the truth can be told and we can have justice. So um, we have not started an initiative to collect testimony, although that is one of the things that needs to happen. In Canada, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was established was the result of a class action lawsuit. In the United States, the statute of limitations doesn't allow us to move forward that way in trying to access justice. In Canada, you know, they, as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they held these regional hearings to collect testimony from survivors. And so, uh, and when they did that, they had to take care of the, the people who were sharing these traumatic stories because um, they, you know, it, it was opening up these these wounds, right? So they had to care for the people who were sharing testimony. They had to um, have counselors on hand and um, healers and people to pray with them and provide emotional, mental, and spiritual support. And so because of that, the way they handled that in a good way to take care of people, we don't have the capacity as a small nonprofit to, to do that, right? And we don't want to open up those wounds and open up those traumatic stories without being able to properly care for people. So while I would love to say, hey, you should share your stories with us, um, I actually caution people against going out and collecting stories. You know, since the news that came out of Canada 
a lot of people have been like, hey, share your stories on, you know, social media or um, reporters want us to, you know, give them the names of survivors so they can interview them. And and we're very protective of the boarding school survivors that are, you know, part of our coalition. Um, we don't necessarily want to just open up access to them um, in that way because it can be traumatic to retell these these stories. And not only for the person to relive the trauma, but it can be traumatic for the people hearing it. Um, because I do this work on a day-to-day basis, um, sometimes I'm able to compartmentalize and just, you know, keep the task at hand on my mind. But other times, you know, it, it gets through and, and I end up feeling the heaviness um, and experiencing what they call vicarious trauma or secondhand trauma, right? Like I'm actually mm-hmm. experiencing the trauma f- from that person, um, from their traumatic events. And so we really want to make sure that when we do open up testimony from survivors and descendants, that we're very cautious about how we do that, that we're not producing more harm and trauma for people. You know, Christine, um, One of my previous positions, I was commissioner of health and human services for the Mille Lacs Band, where I'm enrolled. And we learned, unfortunately, through experience, what you're talking about. And we brought someone um, to the reservation to talk about the boarding school experience. Um, and, And our thinking was that we were trying to put like a... It, it was a healing thing, and we wanted uh, this individual encouraged us to kind of welcome home the survivors from the boarding schools because we have never done that, right? We've never honored those survivors of, of the boarding school era. But in having those discussions, um, we also talked about the impact of boarding schools and what the boarding schools did. Um, We did that for like a three day period. And then for the next three, four months, our social workers and our mental health workers were overrun by the secondary trauma impact it had on our community at Mille Lacs. And that's when I realized that when even for our for ourselves to have these conversations, it opens up so many wounds because we've never healed. We've never talked about it. We've never really dealt with that within our own communities. And I think tribes across the country are beginning that and learning that lesson. So I think that, you know, for an organization like yours, there's great opportunity to work with the tribes to kind of begin that healing process uh, because our folks are all over the place. I mean, you know, I do, I talk about historical trauma in an educational context when I'm dealing with non-Indians because other folks besides just, you know, other than the power differential between Europeans and us, um, many others have no idea, including African-American and Latino and and Asians have no idea what happened to our uh, the history of indigenous people here in this country. So that education kind of goes across the board. But, you know, th- that uh, secondary trauma is something that's very real because I can look at the reaction of my mother who sat in on, on that 
and 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 gauge her reaction to what she was hearing. And so for me, it's personal. You know, I've never never said that I'm a survivor or a descendant of a survivor from a boarding school, but I am. I'm a result of that. You know, my mother wouldn't teach us the Ojibwe language, which, you know, she wanted us to learn. It was important for us to learn English. That's a direct result of the boarding school. The other direct result is that Flandreau, South Dakota was run by the Catholic Church. And the only negative thing my mother ever said about religion is that she didn't want us to have anything to do with Catholicism. That was a direct result of the boarding school. And yet my mom thought her experience at the boarding school, there was nothing wrong with it. How do you explain that dichotomy? And that's what, you know, you hear that there are horror stories of many of our children being um, dying in these institutions, being mistreated, having the language beat out of them. And yet some of those kids came out of that experience thinking nothing was wrong because they didn't realize why they were sent there in the first place. So there's a lot of healing that needs to happen in our community around this issue on top of just the education to make others aware that this even happened. When I, you know, my first um, inclination about this was watching the movie Jim Thorpe who was sent to Carlisle, one of the very first Indian boarding schools, but nowhere in that movie did it mention that Carlisle was an Indian boarding school or the purpose of it, right? We just got this kind of glitzy idea that he was at this boarding school and then became a, a great football player, but we weren't told why it was created or why he was sent there. Yeah, my great-grandfather went to Carlisle, and he actually was there from 1910 to 1915, and he played football with Jim Thorpe. But nobody in my family talked about that until I came to work for the Boarding School Healing Coalition, and I was starting to ask questions about my grandfather's boarding school experience. And that's when my uncle sent me a picture of my great-grandfather who was at Carlisle. And I was like, why didn't anybody talk about this? This is something to be proud of. He played football with Jim Thorpe. That's amazing, right? But at the same time, I had a, a I had mixed feelings. So I was like, oh my gosh, that's another generation of my family right. that was at boarding school. So yeah, it's it's a difficult, complicated history for, you know, not just the general public to try to understand, but for us as Native peoples, especially, um, yeah, it's a mixed bag, right? I've had a lot of boarding school survivors come up and say, I had a good experience at boarding school. I made lifelong friends. I look forward to our reunions every year. Or I met my spouse at boarding school. Um, I love our boarding school. I sent my children there, right? So we we honor the fact that everybody's experience at boarding school was different. It depends on what boarding school you went to. It depends on what era you went to the boarding schools in. Uh, Dr. Brenda Child wrote a book called Boarding School Seasons, where she broke it down by generation. And by far, the first generation had it the worst because mm. they arrived at boarding school not speaking English at all. And the the impact of 
you know, that culture shock of being having your language and your culture and everything prohibited and them trying to change everything about you, the way you dress and cutting your hair and everything, you know, that that was the most severe. And then by the next generation, you have students whose parents might have gone to boarding school themselves and already spoke English. Right. So um, and then when by the time you get to the Great Depression era, People were voluntarily sending their children because of poverty and they wanted their children to have, you know, three meals a day. And so it really depends. It depends on the situation. It depends on the generation and the school and the individual. Right. You you could also have two students at the same school and one was favored by the nuns and one was, you know, abused by the nuns. Right. So it, it just, it's going to vary from person to person. And so we, we do acknowledge and we honor that some people had a good experience, but we absolutely have to acknowledge that some people were abused. And even the people who had a good experience when they went to these historically assimilative boarding schools, they were denied their language and culture. Sidebar, the reason the statute of limitations doesn't apply for a lawsuit is because in the 70s, we had a lot of legislation that came about that actually reversed a lot of the Indian boarding school policy. So the Indian boarding school policy was set in place to civilize and assimilate. And, um, you know, they prohibited language and culture. And then by the 70s, we get the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, the Indian Revitaliz- the Language Revitalization Act, the Indian Child Welfare Act to protect our children, like all these things that reversed the boarding school policy and, and era. Um, some of those boarding schools are still open today, but they are no longer what we call the assimilative historical model. Now they promote language and culture. And a lot of them are uh, run by the tribes or, you know, they're run by the BIE, Bureau of Indian Education. In, in partnership with the tribes, some of them are still being run by religious institutions. And um, when it comes to talking about it, my grandfather went to Marty Catholic Indian School and he never wanted to talk about it. So I don't know what happened to him there. I assume there was abuse. And all he said about religion, Don, was I never want, he said he never wanted to step foot in the Catholic Church again. And that's what caused me to do my master's thesis on Native American spirituality and Christianity, because I saw, you know, a lot of conflict and had that conflict even within myself. Like, how can I be a Native person and, you know, be Christian or or not? Or should I just, you know, denounce Christianity, right? They did a lot of bad things to my people in the name of God, right? Uh, so I had to come to terms with, you know, my relationship to the divine, the creator, um, and, you know, acknowledging that mankind often doesn't speak for the creator, even though they try. <laughs> so... You know, uh, Christine, I'm so glad you brought that up because I actually went to that map that you have on the website um, that lists uh, the 367 schools. And you alluded earlier earlier that this is that we know of and that there's continued research to 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 uncover because uh, like so much of our history, we get the pieces that we have some documentation of. And then there's a whole lot that we we just can't put 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 into their hands. Twenty nine states involved um, and 14 Christian denominations of which, you know, you list 80 Catholic 
uh, um, uh, 21 Presbyterian, 15 Quaker, nine Episcopal, 12 Methodist. Um, and, and, and I say this because, and we haven't talked about this yet, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being ordained in September, um, you know, God willing in the African Methodist Episcopal church. And one of the tensions, when you bring up those tensions, um, exists in my community as well. You know, we, we have an Afro-Asiatic wisdom tradition that is then taken um, and represented as it goes and spreads across the globe and represented in a particular way that gives us our, our kind of modern, um, you know, uh, Eurocentric version of this Afro-Asiatic tradition that is then turned around and used uh, to, to um, in, in papal bulls that allow, that, that give folks their quote unquote moral right to, to, to manifest destiny, you know? So, so it's, a, it's an extremely complicated um, uh, uh, intersection, but I, I can't, I can't not just, just run the numbers. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a state where, 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 you know, according to the, the research that your, your organization has out there, we, we had 15 in Minnesota. And so again, I just want to make sure that we don't, whether we are speaking from, uh, people of faith and with the Christian faith, um, people as, as people that are citizens of the United States or that people that are, that are citizens of the state of Minnesota. I don't want to allow folks to be able to distance and say, well, that was something that happened over there. No, we had 15 and all of the major mainline denomination Christian denominations in the state of Minnesota had a hand in it. And, um, and, and the original purpose that you just spoke to, I just want to underscore that, um, you know, the, the, the statement say, uh, uh, kill the Indian, save the man is the purpose behind the boarding school policies. Um, and so I, in the interest of the truth side of this, you know, to make that very plain, you know, without, without even having to get to the individualized stories, which is often what's asked of people of color is to relive their individualized stories as some kind of proof that the that, that this happened when the data is there already. Take the themes and let's make make the the, the changes that need to happen. Um, you also reminded me, um, you know, the fact that the you, you talked to her hearing you talking about uh, it's in the seventies we get some legislation to reverse that. Don, this was like a light bulb. So so Don took us on res for one of our conversations recently, and uh, at, at Malax and spoke to the fact that there were, you pointed out a building, an area where traditional ceremony was illegal until the 70s. It's just dawning on me that it's that legislative reform package or packages that in the 70s that allowed for, for, for that to no longer be illegal. So, there, so there's that through theme across a lot of our conversations about making our own existence, our own identity, and our own way of being illegal in this country. And this is a theme that is, that is faced by, uh, by all of the marginalized communities that, that, that are now find themselves here on native land. And so there's some light bulbs that were, that were screaming and popping out for me as you were laying out those, those numbers. And I really appreciate you for that. You know, I, um, I'll share a little current story. Um, probably about four or five years ago, I belong to a group here in St. Paul of Native American educators, uh, uh, program directors, and others who are involved in, in, in St. Paul with the American Indian community. And we were sitting around strategizing and trying to talk about, come up with what makes up American Indian culture. And 
we had two meetings on this. And after two meetings, not much was coming out. So at this meeting, I voiced the fact that I am the child of a mother who was sent to boarding school, who then relocated through the, you know, during the relocation period, moved to the Twin Cities. Um, I was born and raised in the city. And while I interacted with my relatives on the reservation, I lived in the city. So my, my lived experience of what American Indian or Malax or Ojibwe culture is, is a mixed bag of experiences that I didn't have a lot to draw on because I don't speak the language and I wasn't born on and raised on the reservation. Although I took part with, with powwows and some other things. So my comment was how successful the boarding schools were and what they were attempting to do. And once I said that out loud around this table of my colleagues in the American Indian community, it was like a domino effect. And I, some kind of way, made it possible for everyone around that table to share almost the exact same sediment that I had just opened up and said. And it was a shocking revelation to me as we sit around and we look at each other and we're clearly indigenous with varying different degrees of what that means. Do you know what I'm talking about, Christine? I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And and that is a direct result of this boarding school policy that was put in place on top of everything else, rounding us up, taking our land, and then relegating us to these reservations, i.e. concentration camps. And, and uh, you know, usually in areas that uh, were very unproductive or, or, or so they thought. Um, and it's, it's a direct result of that to where we're sitting around trying to come up with what we think it, it means to be Native. And, and that's a very hard thing to admit, I think. Yeah, it gets into it makes me think of identity politics, right? Um, <clears throat> which not only means our identity is a political status as sovereign nations and citizens of those tribal nations, but also the politics of how Indian are you? And, you know, I'm a pretty your audience can't see me, but they can easily look me up on the Internet and see that I'm pretty fair scared skinned Indian. Right. Like I uh, I probably have some Indian features, but I've, my skin is pretty milky. <laughs> so um, there have been times when I have been misidentified um, as white by, you know, people who are darker than me. And there have been times when I have been outed as not white by the white people, you know, so I'm not white enough for the white people and I'm not Indian enough for the Indian people. Gosh, darn it. Like, you know, this is, and I know a lot of us have that same, you know, um, situation where it's like, okay, we're an urban Indian versus a res Indian or, oh, we're an Indian that doesn't know our language. And absolutely, Don, you hit the nail on the head. That is, that's a direct result of the Indian boarding school policy. That is their, you know, the success of the assimilation policy that we have assimilated to a point where some people even deny their Indian identity 
they want to be white because we were told in these schools that it wasn't good to be Indian. The the class of um, the graduating class of Carlisle in you know 1892 was told, "Let all that is Indian in you die." Right. So we were told to be ashamed of being Indian. We were told that our culture and our ways were evil and demonic and pagan. And, you know, you should be white. You should be Christian. And so, yeah, we got some um, some identity issues. <laughs> it's by design. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to that. We could have a whole show on that. It's interesting to, to, to bring up the the stigmas that we apply, right, in, in this mechanism. The boarding schools were, were part of a mechanism that went, you know, even, yes, inside the boarding schools, but outside of of that, there were still mechanisms in place to try to, um, to, to demonize, to vilify um, even the practices of Native folks. Um, we, we haven't shaken um, this, this, um, this internalization of, of native practices and spiritual practices as pagan or demonic, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, 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 a I'm a preacher myself. I'm, I'm, I'm clergy myself or, in, or about to be ordained clergy level uh, at, at a certain level. And I remember in the silent clergy March that we had um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, um, there was a group of, of, pastors from all across the state, den- denominational leaders across interfaith. It was interfaith, ecumenical, across many different spaces. And, and I was there with, um, uh, and, and Jim Bear Jacobs from the Minnesota Council of Churches was there. And, you know, every, you know and, and, and they began to smudge. And so I was joining in and participating in that. And I had pastors, pastors come to me and go, what is that? What are you doing? Um, and they didn't say the words outright because they were politically astute enough to know the space that they were in. And I just, I, I sounded off and it was not pretty and it was not friendly and it doesn't always have to be because I got my call to ministry in sweat. Um, Donna, M- Mama Donna Stein brought me to her, to, with her family, third grandfather, um, I, w- I was punking out because <laughs> because there was there was four more coming and I was already had my head to the ground and they were trying to take care of me and the jokes were flying and it was hilariously fun. But in that third round of prayer is when I got my call to ministry and I was in college at the time. Um, that that first that first inkling, right? And so I had to sound off and be like, "That's where I got my call." So if you, so, so if it is true, if I go along with your logic that this is somehow demonic, then a then there's there's leverage to the scripture that, that says what God what, what the devil used uh, tried to use to, to break me down. God's going going to use differently. And we haven't shaken that, and and I think it's important in this conversation about the the policies that attempted to play out this cultural genocide or attempt at cultural genocide um, to know that there's staying power in it, that it hasn't gone away, that all it takes is to to go to some places where there's tensions. I took my family on two trips, one through the Dakotas to, to Yellowstone, and we had a lot of learning in that space about whose land it was and the battles that were fought in that regard. We also went to the Southwest. And I, it, it was very clear and poignant that these negative uh, views of native peoples are alive and well and look very similar to the things that were used at the front end of the boarding school policies. So we are not far. We are not far and we have not shaken uh, these mental models. 
Wow, that's super powerful, Anthony. Um, lots of thoughts on that. Um, interesting, a little ironic that you got the call to ministry <laughs> sweat lodge. Um, but hey, yeah, creator moves in mysterious ways. So mm-hmm. yeah, it made me think about, you know, two things. One, again, the research that I did for my thesis and definitely encountered that, you know, my, my research questions were about areas of compatibility between native spirituality and Christianity and areas of conflict. And because it was a master's in leadership, I had to somehow tie it to leadership. So what I was doing was looking at spiritual leaders in the, um, the urban Indian community and interviewing people who were, you know, pastors at churches or spiritual leaders in the community. And what I, what I found was that absolutely there are still spiritual leaders in the church who condemn native ways. And that is that, that's kind of scary, right? Like what century do you live in? And, and, you know, really calling those people out in my thesis and continuing to do that in, in my work at the boarding school healing coalition and say, the churches and the leaders within the church absolutely have to acknowledge their role in this history. Um, you know, you cannot hide behind the Bible when you were uh, not just com- complicit, but participatory in Come genocide, on. right? This is genocide, right? So are you trying to tell me that the Bible condones genocide? Well, maybe now that's a different conversation. <laughs> come on. Oh, you that'll preach. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely like something that needs to be talked about. And and the leaders within the church not only have to acknowledge that history, but they cannot continue to perpetuate those same harms because that is what we're talking about, you know, in terms of the boarding school harms, the indoctrination and the forced conversion, the eradication of our culture and our ways, right? So Absolutely. The the church bears a lot of responsibility here. We focus on the federal government because this was a federal policy, but they gave a lot of money to churches to run these schools. And the good news is that a lot of congregations and leaders at a denominational level have reached out to us at the coalition and want to voluntarily engage in truth telling and healing. And, you know, they like to use the word reconciliation because it is a biblical term, but native communities you know, the word reconciliation has some problems for us. So that's why we we said, you know, it's truth and healing. We want a truth and healing commission. Um, and really, when you look at uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and what he did in South Africa, mm-hmm. he was very honest about the process and how, you know, there was something missing between truth and reconciliation. Like, okay, so we had the truth, but how do we get to reconciliation? And what's missing in the middle is, is that element of justice, that mm-hmm. element that says, Okay, this is what this is this is, this is the harms that were done, and this this is what needs to be corrected. These are the harms that need to stop and not continue, and and that's the element of justice, right? Where where you know it, whether it's reparations or redress or something that was broken needs to be made whole. It needs to be fixed and repaired, and then change can happen if you promised not to repeat. And if you have to do the work to fix what you broke, you're probably not going to break it again, right? Mm -hmm. So making that change so that there's true transformation for society to evolve and move forward 
Um, you know, here we've come full circle. This is about the evolution of society. This is about us being better human beings to one another. And um, although there are some churches who want to enter into that, um, there are still some who are not ready. And, and there's probably a lot of members of society, uh, you know, in and outside of the church that are just not ready. But good news is there's a lot more of us who are. Again, you know, you, there, there were so many things that I was going to jump in and, and throw into that. Um, but I think that we're, we're kind of reaching the end of our time. And, and, and so, um, you know, I think Christine, you know, we've had an opportunity to kind of, in my mind, touch, just touch, barely touch on this subject. And just in our discussion this evening, there were so many different topics that came up surrounding this idea of boarding schools um, in terms of healing, re, uh, reconciliation, you know, education, uh, the, you know, much of the general, well, most of non-Indians have no idea about the history of boarding schools, nor do they have any idea, I think, just in terms of the general history of what happened to the indigenous populations here in this country to get us to where we're at. And, and I think that, you know, there are so many things we're going to have to have you back with us. Um, not just another time, but I think many other times, if you're willing to come back. Um, yeah, I get a little lonely being the, the, the bearer of, of, of Native American kind of, kind of things on counter stories, but I love it. But I also love having community members come in and, uh, your your knowledge and your expertise and and, and uh, your experience, I think, will uh, add to uh, the education of uh, of many others. And and so, yeah, I want to thank you, Christine, for joining us here at Counter Stories. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And um, I would just like to invite everyone to go to boardingschoolhealing.org, learn more, check out our resources. If you're native. We do have a survey going in partnership with the University of Minnesota to um, ask about the impacts of boarding school and foster care and adoption in our communities. So go ahead and, and help us out by taking that survey. Um, if you're a boarding school survivor or descendant and you're over 60, we have elder care packages you can sign up for. But yeah, just go and follow us on social media, sign up for our e-news, join the coalition. It's free. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, and I will for sure... To accept that invitation to come back. I appreciate it. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and cultural consultant. Anthony Galloway, executive director of Arts Us and senior partner at Dendros. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. I'm Christine Dindisi McCleave, CEO for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. This program is a co production of the Counter Stories crew the other media group, and AMFERS, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.